Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, we got a good one for y'all today. Very relatable topic. Papancha which uh, is just mind tripping. You ever trip? You ever go on, go into some scary places in your mind, some stressful places? The future, the past, worry, regret, guilt, regret, resentment, shame, fear, anticipation, expectation. All right, good. Relatable, right? I like the word papancha. It's something that's fun to say, but not something fun to experience. (laughs) Um, And it's not a topic you hear a lot about in Buddhist communities. I call it a once a year Dharma talk. Yeah, I think probably the last time I gave this talk was two or three years ago. Um, I actually did a Google search, just typed in papancha, and the first entry was an article written in 2006. by Andrew Olinsky, a really good article uh, in Lion's Roar on Papancha. So it's not one that you hear a lot in Buddhist communities. Um, And I think the reason for that is that the the core of this teaching is contained within the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths. As a matter of fact, the Buddha says that all of his teachings can be found within the Four Noble Truths. He, he likens it to that of a footprint of an elephant, that all of the other animals in the wild, their footprint can fit inside of the footprint of an elephant, that all of his teachings can fit inside of that of the Four Noble Truths. And so in the Four Noble Truths, the ba- basic teaching is that the Buddha says, have you noticed how hard it is to be human? First Noble Truth. It's not a proclamation, I don't think. It's not a belief, a capital T truth that you have to believe in. It's an inquiry. Is it tough? Is it hard? Is there pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, status and disgrace? Do you get pushed around by the impermanence of life? Just when we think we find happiness, something changes. We get fired, we go through a pandemic or an election, or just when we finally get it the way we need it, it changes. And that, that is hard. And I think the first noble truth is to validate. It is hard. And that there's nothing wrong with you if you're going through a hard time. But that much of our added suffering in life comes from our mind the habit of the mind, the ways that we think, our perspectives, some of these things that we're going to get into when we're talking about papancha. So you may have never heard of papancha, but you've definitely experienced it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what it is, and then Mikey and I are going to have a conversation about the different categories. There are three of them. 
and while we're doing that maybe offer some ways to practice with it and how meditation helps us to un unhook from it. Papancha is one of these words in Pali Sanskrit that is an onomatopoeia. It kind of sounds like what it is. And there's not a very clear specific definition, but it means something like mental proliferation, like a spreading out. How the mind just has a tendency, once it starts getting caught up in something stressful, just to kind of pile it on. The exact uh, derivative of the word in Pali Sanskrit has three different kind of meanings. Meaning if you kind of look through all of the suttas and the way that Papancha is used, it's used in these three different ways. The first is, is it's talked about as this spreading out and proliferating of the mind. The second is it's talked about this illusion that's created through the mind or sometimes a mental obsession that's created. And the third way it's talked about it, it's talked about as an obstacle or an impediment to clarity, peacefulness. So in the 2006 article by Andrew Holinsky, he gives a good connecting point to all three of these qualities. So look into your own mind and see if you've ever had this experience. He said, this term is used to describe the tendency of the mind to spread out and elaborate upon any moment of experience, smothering it with a wave after wave of mental stress, most of which is illusory, repetitive, and obsessive, which effectively blocks any sort of mental calm or clarity of mind. This is the tendency to kind of think ourselves into a corner, to make a mountain out of a molehill, or to even create a molehill that doesn't even exist. I like to think that, let's say I'm driving down Gallatin Pike, it's a hot day, I have my window rolled down, my arm out the window, I stop at a red light, I look over and I see the same car, the same color and the same model that my ex used to drive. And maybe I hadn't had my coffee yet, so I haven't really checked in with myself emotionally. I'm feeling kind of just off, a little bit lonely, a little bit isolated, but I haven't really checked into my mind or my body. And so I'm looking over, I see this car and I just, nervously look in, oh, thank God, it's not them. Then I pull off the green light, start driving down Gallatin Pike, and with mindfulness not present, my mind just starts reflecting on that relationship. First, I start thinking about all the good things, and I start feeling like I'm missing this person. I feel lost. Then I start thinking about the breakup and my regrets and what they said and what I said and how it ended. And then I start thinking about the future and how I haven't dated anyone since then and the dating scene in Nashville kind of sucks. It's like the same 30 people cycle through the apps and maybe I'll move to Seattle. Maybe there are hotter people there or smarter people there, or more progressive people there. 
So what really happened? I saw a fucking car. That's what really happened. That's a moment of sense contact. Seeing arising, a car. But the car has this power of perception. It has memory, it has context, it has story. And the elaboration of that into the loss, into the grief, into my future hopelessness, and how I'm going to be alone forever. This is papancha. <laughs> so have you had an experience like this? Maybe your mind is not as dark as mine. <laughs> In Zen Buddhism, sometimes they refer to this as the monkey mind. And I just love this metaphor of just how one thought swings to the next thought, that swings to the next thought, and it just builds this momentum. And I got really interested in this a few years ago, and I was like, I really love to use this, but I've got to find where it relates to the old text, because we're Theravadan Buddhists, and we always look at like what the Buddha said in the actual Pali Canon, right? Clinging to views and opinions. We'll get to that in Papancha <laughs> later. So I start looking through the suttas, and I find the sutta called the Makata Sutta, and Makata actually means monkey. And the Buddha talks about this papancha as the monkey mind. He says, there are in the Himalayas, a king, the king of mountains, level stretches of land, delightful, where both monkeys and human beings wander. In such spots, hunters set a tar trap in the monkeys' tracks in order to catch some of the monkeys. Those monkeys who are not foolish or careless by nature, meaning those with mindfulness, when they see the tar trap, they avoid it from afar. But any monkey who is foolish and careless by nature, meaning when we're not mindful, comes up to the tar trap and grabs it with its paw. They get stuck there thinking, well, I'll free my paw with my other paw. And then they get stuck there with both of their paws caught in the trap, thinking, I'll free both of my paws. So they put their foot in the trap and then it gets stuck there thinking, I'll free both my paws and my foot, and they grab it with their other foot, thinking, I'll free both my thaws, paws and my feet as well, and they grab it with their mouth, and they get stuck there. So the monkey is now snared in five ways, lying there, whimpering, having fallen on misfortune, fallen on ruin, a prey to whatever the hunter wants to do with them, the hunter being mental suffering. Then the hunter, without releasing the monkey, skewers them right there, picks them up and goes off as they like. And I laugh because the metaphor is the hunter is suffering. Do you ever feel skewered by your suffering? Mikey will talk about this. The mind is just so powerful, but also so impersonal. So having a thinking mind is not a problem. And Papancha doesn't refer to the amount of thoughts we have. Sometimes when we first start meditating, we think that the goal of meditation is to stop thinking. Well, good luck. Haven't had that experience yet. But sure, the thoughts can quiet down quite a bit. Sometimes on retreat, pretty dramatically. But they come back. And it's our relationship to our thoughts. 
It's not the amount of thoughts we have, but it's really these categories that Mikey's going to talk about, these traps that we get caught in that we want to look at. So what are these traps? Before I get into the traps, uh, papancha. Y'all want to say it, right? Repeat after me. Papancha. Papancha. Yeah, it's so much fun to say. And so as Andrew said, like, this is not a talk we tend to give, maybe once a year. I've, I think my first Dharma talk was 2017. I've never given a talk on Papancha, so let's see where this goes. Uh, so that, the introduction, yeah, thank you for that, Andrew. And so let's get into what we're getting into, these three aspects of Papancha that were laid out for us 2,600 years ago by the Buddha. And the first one is craving, the Papancha of craving. And it's this belief that if only I had this, then I'd be happy. The if only mind that we want to explore. And then the second flavor of papancha is this selfing, the self-identification that we cling to, especially the mind as I and mine. We believe everything this mind thinks. And then the third one we'll go into last is the, the holding to fixed views. And what I find, sometimes my extremes of my mind tend to be a protective layer over my heart. And uh, then we find ourselves having some limiting and wacky beliefs sometimes. So these are the three aspects we'll go into. Um, so passing over to Andrew to let's talk about craving. Why not? Mikey didn't want to talk about craving, yeah. so that's why I'm going again. <laughs> <laughs> I, wasn't, I was craving for non-talking about craving. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think the reason is, is that it's actually so fundamental and essential to the Buddhist teaching that it is kind of the topic, right? It is the thing that we're investigating in our mind. How often does the mind tell us that this moment is lacking? That if only this thing about it was different, or if only I had this other thing. I call it the if-onlys and the I'd-rather-bees. I'd rather be somewhere else or with someone else or doing something else or if only I wasn't sick right now or if only American Airlines had more seating, more leg room or right? Trying to fix, manage and control the present experience to our liking. Never quite enough. In the Buddha's teaching, he distinguishes the difference between having desire and tanha, which means thirst, this unquenchable, almost reflexive impulse of needing something to be different. Craving, in the sense, is not just having desire. We have desire. I'd like to go on a walk. I'd like to go to the meditation center. I'd like to call a friend. I'd like to order a salad, you know? <laughs> We have to work within making decisions and having desire, but craving is this kind of demanding the satisfaction of. It's often not a conscious thought, it's a reflex, it's an impulse to act. And we practice with this in meditation when we sit quietly for 30 minutes. Have you ever noticed your mind wanting to get up? Go do something else? Does it ever tell you that you have something better to do other than meditate? Every time? 
And what happens if we don't have to really follow the impulse? And we don't have to even judge that the impulse is there? It's not a moral issue. Melvin Connor, a neuroscientist, said that this is the default mode network of our brain. He said it's best categorized by this uh, phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. Just this restless feeling of needing something. I get this feeling at night. Got the Netflix, got my fan on, the temperature is nice, I'm on my comfortable couch. Everything is exactly as I would want it to be, but not quite. There's just that feeling sometimes we get of wanting something. The easiest thing for me to do is to go to the fridge. And there's nothing wrong with eating, right? Having desire, you want to eat, eat, sure. But it's really pausing in these moments and investigating, am I hungry or is this something else, this restlessness? So how does this cause suffering? I think it creates a constant feeling of leaning into something that's not happening now. You know, how often we can follow this pathway of craving and just even in our careers or once I get the next promotion or once I make the next amount of money or once I buy my home or once I get a partner or once I get settled in my place, then I will do the things that are meaningful and purposeful in my life. And we never get there. It's the biggest trick of all time that my happiness is always just right around the corner in the next thing. Whether it's the next sense thing, the next drink or drug or food or pleasure. Not that pleasure is a problem, but when I put my happiness staked upon a temporary moment of pleasure, I'm always going to be longing for more. Real pleasure, enjoyment of pleasure is a non-attached enjoyment. An ability to be with it in its temporariness, but not chasing it obsessively and addictively till it's in. Or whether it's the craving for self, the craving for non-existence, not wanting to be who we are. And Mikey's going to talk a little bit about self and how selfing causes craving or suffering. Now? Sure. Okay. <laughs> if you want I wanted to. like a big, ladies and gentlemen, and, and, you know. Uh, so uh, the craving, this craving mind that I think even when we talk about craving, uh, I think there's something about understanding that it's not your fault you crave. It's natural human biology to crave for more pleasure and to crave to be away from pain. And that's not necessarily the suffering. The suffering is when we self-identify with our craving. That this mind is quite self-centered. I, I had the thought the other day, and I, I'm still pondering upon this. Do I ever have a thought that isn't about me? Like, even when I think about somebody else, it's in relationship to me. And so to see that the craving 
isn't necessarily the suffering or the self-centered thoughts aren't necessarily the suffering. It's our self-identifying with these thoughts. When we grasp on and believe everything we think, that's where I find myself in the most amount of stress and difficulty. You know, I teach meditation in a variety of settings and to a lot of newcomers. And the number one thing I run into, I can't meditate, I think too much. The thinking's not the problem. So when we see the impersonal nature of this mind, just like the ears hear sound, the sight or the eyes see sight, the body feels touch, the mind thinks thoughts. Totally impersonal. The trouble is we fall into that trap of non-reality. We fall into those thoughts that lead to another thought to another thought, like Andrew said about the car. And then we find ourselves in this moment of non-reality until we go, oh yeah, I'm lost in that thought. And to know a thought as a thought, just like we know an in-breath as an in-breath and an out-breath as an out-breath. There's a teacher, Burmese teacher, Manindraji. He was a teacher of like Joseph Goldstein and Deepa Ma. And he has this saying, and I love saying this, a thought of your mother is not your mother, it's a thought. So the thought of the picnic later isn't a picnic, it's a thought. The thought of work tomorrow isn't work, it's a thought. And over and over, breaking free of that delusion of believing thoughts are any more or any less than a thought leads to a great deal of freedom. And, let's be real, that's hella difficult. So I love the story, and I'm sure you've all heard it over and over again, about Mara. When the Buddha reached his awakening, what did he wake up to? It was this demon in his mind telling him some terrible things. And as he sat there, arrows of hate and, and all sorts of manifestation of self-doubt and, and worry and, and just the things that the mind do started to rise in his practice. And so rather than believing those thoughts, he just said, I see you, Mara. And so not that this story is said to be like an interdimensional battle between two opposing forces. It's more what happens when you meditate, and the Buddha is offering us instructions. You know, I, I take some of these instructions quite literal, that we can develop a clear vision by understanding the characters of our mind. So what I think is the Buddha was sitting there and noticing his thoughts and was like, Damn, that's like some devil-ass shit in my mind, right? And say, I see you, Mark. So this is a practice I take on. I'm seeing the thoughts as characters in the mind. Like, I have this like problem child in my mind. I don't wanna, I don't wanna, I don't wanna. And going into I don't want to talk about craving. I don't want to talk about craving. <laughs> my problem child won in that in that cat in that. You know, sometimes it's cool. I love your problem over. child. Yeah, thank you. And so, I could see you. I could see you, problem child. Okay? I don't have to believe you. I don't have to not believe you. But I could see that as a thought. I have this internal Antifa. He's like a revolutionary, black blocked out, has a mocktail cocktail, ready to blow shit up at any sight of any sort of, you know, misdoing. And so if I see any sort of corruption, 
or any sort of oppression. It's like, let's blow this shit up. And, and, and it gets quite dramatic in my mind. And, but really it comes out as some sort of dismissiveness of like, oh, I don't like them, you know? But it gets like dramatic in my mind how I want to blow this shit up. And it's like, oh, I see you. I see you, internal revolutionary. And so more and more when we start to see the mind as the mind in, in all these creative ways, we gain freedom. Not that we can destroy the mind, but we can use the mind to view the mind. What's called metacognition. Not like meta, like loving kindness, but turning the mind in on itself, M-E-T-A, cognition. And, um, yeah, I don't know, do you have anything on that? I think a lot about um, how popular Brene Brown is, and you have to think about why is that. Well, she's a great author, obviously, and... You know, she definitely knows what she's talking about. But I think the reason why Brene Brown is so popular is because she talks about shame. And number one thing that I see as a therapist, people come into therapy about or for, whether they know it or not, is because they feel they're not good enough. And the insidious nature of shame is that it's actually incredibly self-centered. Not in the sense that we think of self-centeredness as this kind of like narcissistic, grandiose sense of self. But it's this sense of worthlessness. And this is a really powerful practice, actually. Mikey and I would not be sitting here today. Who wants to sit and stare at their mind for 30 minutes? Who wants to go on meditation retreats and sit and stare at their mind? I think I'm here today is because of the power of being able to see that at the core of the suffering in my mind is the sense of separateness from other people. And that it is all an illusion. The mind that compares, it's a thought. The mind that competes, it's a thought. The mind that doesn't feel good enough, it's a thought. It doesn't mean that knowing that it's a thought makes it go away right away, but it certainly helps when we meditate and we start to see, oh, wow, I don't have to buy what my mind is telling me, hook, line, and sinker. The thought's still gonna arise, like Mikey's saying, but we can see it with investigating wisdom. Oh, interesting, there it is. With compassionate awareness. Sweet mind, you're scared. You feel separate. Rather than running out in the world and causing all these reactive problems, as I did through years of drug and alcohol addiction because of my shame, I can start to bring compassion to that part of my mind and to say, I see you, I care about you, what you're feeling is valid, I know where it comes from, but it's actually not true. It's a thought. A lot of times these characters in my mind aren't even my voice. 
this is the power of the impersonal nature of how our environments construct our mind. We know this to be true psychologically. Read any, you know, of John Bowlby's research on attachment theory, and we can recognize how much your early relationships play a part in developing not just how you relate to people, but actually how your consciousness is set up. Your relationship with yourself and your idea of who you are is constructed through your earliest relationships. Pre-verbally, too. Not just what was said, but was someone, was a presence in the room where you held, where you walked, where you cared for, where you, all of these things. And then think about the rest of our environment. Thich Nhat Hanh calls it practicing wise consumption, right? Who I hang out with, spiritual friendship, the Buddha says is the cornerstone of his teaching. Having people that are caring and that are interested in kindness and compassion, joy, wisdom. So I think about these voices, these characters in my mind, and it gives me this urgency of really being protective about what I allow this mind to do. What's cool about this in the Buddhist teaching, I'm going a little deep here. What's cool about this in the Buddhist teaching is that it actually transcends morality. It's not about what you do is right or wrong. That's just a fucking thought. It's that what you do creates a habit pattern. What you consume affects your mind. It interfaces with your mind and your mind creates a rippling effect. We know this about trauma. They call it the wound that seeks the arrows. Why do we recreate similar trauma cycles, right? Why do we try to recreate behaviors of seeking people that continue to reinforce the things we learned growing up because it's familiar. So there's a big teaching in this on not self and karma, some deep shit, you know, but the reason why I say all of this is because it is very freeing the simple teaching that Mikey offered during the meditation. When you see the mind wandering, just note it as a thought doesn't need to go away, doesn't need to change. We don't need to do anything about it, just see it as a thought. And that simple practice, I feel like seemingly has saved my life. You know, some of these thoughts, to be real, have tried to kill me. You know, some suicidal ideation. Um, and when those visions pop into my mind of me in elaborate ways of dying, it can be terrifying. They're, they're, uh, Brad Warner, he's a Zen teacher, and he says, oh, if you want to kill yourself, please kill yourself, but not with a gun, not with a rope, but kill the self-identification. And while these images may be terrifying for me, I, I can still come to a sense of security to know that is a thought. That is a thought. And over time, hopefully karma will do its work where I start seeing the clarity of these extreme thoughts. Um, I was teaching at a, a treatment center 
And in this group, there was this beautiful young woman and extremely likable, and she was sharing about how she hated herself. And the room was shocked. Like, oh, you hate yourself? You seem to have it all. And then they kept on complimenting her and complimenting her about how wrong she was to have thoughts of self-hatred. And the more and more I, I, I saw her kind of cowering and kind of being defeated, like you're wrong for having thoughts of self-hatred. After the class, I came to her and I said, yeah, I get thoughts of self-hatred from time to time. It's okay. And it's a, it, really, I don't think we get permission to have self-hateful thoughts. And for me, a certain amount of self-love can be unconditional. I want to develop a type of self-love that can look right at the thought of self-hatred and say, I can love you too. Leaving nothing out, even those thoughts that try to kill me. And which, you know, when I'm going into this extreme language, because the next flavor of papancha is fixed views, holding to fixed views. And I think what happens is we try to make sense of this world and we find ourselves in these corners of the extremes. It's either this way, it's either that way. It's always or never. It's black and white. And then we try to make sense in these worlds of extremes and they become quite stressful. And the example I tend to give is, like, let's say you're dating somebody new. We're, we're talking a lot about dating now. Two old married guys talking a lot about dating. So, um, Let's say you're, you're dating somebody and you're like really into them. You wake up every morning thinking about them and you go to bed every night uh, dreaming about them. They're, they're your whole world. And then one day you get a phone call. They're not into you anymore. <laughs> they're done and you get dumped. So what happens in the mind? The mind can go to the extreme of like, well, they suck, and their feet smell bad, and they're bad in bed, and I didn't like them all that much anyway, and you go to the extreme of hating them. If you're anything like me, you may go to the extreme of hating yourself. Oh, I just not cut out for dating. I shouldn't date anybody. Like, I need to just stop dating. D dating's not for me. I'm too, too weird. I'm too much of a fuck-up. And then we go to these extreme beliefs. And these limiting beliefs that guard our heart but in a very confused way. And then the more we take refuge in our thoughts and find security in those extreme beliefs, the more we're living in fear and the less we're living in freedom. So with this mindfulness, it can get to a place to challenge those thoughts of extreme views. Because for me, it has that sense of understanding that the head tries to protect the heart at all costs. It tries to make sense of this world. There's that book, um, No Self, No Problem. Do you remember who wrote that? Chris Niebauer. Yeah, Chris Niebauer. And there's a study. I'm going to try to uh, give a synopsis of it. Hopefully I do it justice. There's a study in that book where they, in the 1980s, they found that people with extreme seizures, if they split their brain, the left and the right hemisphere, they split their brain it will stop them from having seizures. And so while they had this split brain situation, they started studying the left and right hemispheres. So what they would do is they would see that there is a um, experiencer and an interpreter, that the right brain is the experiencer and the left brain is the interpreter. So they would feed information 
to the experiencer, like laughter. The person would start laughing, and then he would ask the left brain, why are you laughing? And they would say, oh, because of that funny joke you told me. Nobody told a joke. The brain didn't care. It was just trying to make sense of why they, they were laughing. And there's different uh, parts of this study that they would feed like uh, images of chickens in one, and then the, the left brain would give a story about cleaning a chicken coop just out of nowhere. Because it does, like, our right brain does not care. The interpreter does not care if what you're saying is true. It's just trying to make sense of this world. And like I said, so much of my experience is this felt emotion. And then the head is like, I'm trying to make sense of this felt painful emotion. And so for me, it's like bringing in a sense of compassion. If I find myself in mindfulness to go, oh, that's an extreme thought, an extreme belief that's limiting me, that's holding me back. It's almost like, okay, what is calling to be felt right now? And so bringing in the heart of compassion, while this can be really dry and you know, categorizing the mind, when we bring in the heart and say, what am I feeling right now? Nothing to fix, nothing to control. What is calling for my love? And more and more, if I go to, okay, the grief of the breakup, that hurt. Where does that hurt exist in my body right now? How is this hurt calling to be expressed? Does this hurt have any needs right now? And if we embrace that pain directly, I feel like the head starts to soften up a bit. And the more and more we are willing to bring in a heartfulness into our practice and our extremes of the mind start to soften, we start to see the world in a different way. You know, we live in a world of very extreme beliefs right now. And from my experience, we also live in a very broken-hearted world. So there's so many superficial arguments happening. You believe this, well, you're stupid because you should believe that. And it's these both extremes happening. And I'm not saying don't have your views and beliefs. That's great, but have them come from the heart. And so when you find somebody of an extreme belief, you go, yeah, I got some wacky beliefs. Understand, they're probably fucking heartbroken and have compassion for them. Maybe not listen to everything they say and have clear boundaries, but understand with the heart. You, you probably have some hurt in there. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have anything on these? I think that's great. I mean, I would just say that what you were just talking about around how our our mind fixates on views in extreme ways, usually based on emotion, and getting underneath the belief, you know, I was... Uh, renting a building from someone one time and the contractor was just horseshit. That was my belief. <laughs> that was my belief. Lying, not doing their job, like lying in a very deceitful, harmful way. Like, hey, did you do that today? Yes, I did that. And then I would go and it would like not be done. And uh, I could have just ran with that belief, you know, it's a bad person, 
horseshit contractor. <laughs> he is a liar. He is a this. He is a that. He is a... <clears throat> which is one way of relating. What was the reality? The reality was that I was afraid. I was afraid that the space would not get done. I felt out of control. I felt like I was going to have to pay all this rent for some place that people wouldn't want to come. All of that. And so what I did is I talked to the person and I said, hey, I need to let you know heart to heart, I'm really scared. I'm scared that this isn't going to get done and we open on this day and I don't feel like you've been honest with me and it is really upsetting. I'm angry. So I even talked about my anger. But I talked about it. I didn't call him names. I didn't... And to watch his demeanor change in that moment, <clears throat> it's not that he even got the work done any faster, but to see him, <laughs> to see him soften, right, is like, was actually a really powerful moment. It was a dramatic change from just letting someone live in this prison in my mind of this bad person you know, how many people do I want to keep in that cage in my mind? I know I'm in there a lot of the time, and I throw other people in there too. It doesn't mean that we lose wisdom if we stop to drop our fixed, rigid beliefs. We need to have more faith in our wisdom than that. Right? If you believe, have some, you know, progressive political beliefs or whatever it means, it's okay to let yourself question them. You're not gonna lose your wisdom with questioning. You're only gonna gain more. And this is really scary and an interesting concept, but in Zen Buddhism, they call this the beginner's mind, is not being afraid to set your views aside and just be open. If it doesn't directly affect your safety, for sure, you know? But I mean, like some of these uncomfortable situations, you know, we need to have views and opinions to operate in the world and we don't have to throw them out. But we also can listen. As a therapist, I hear people tell me all sorts of crazy shit that they believe. It's not my job to tell them that what they believe is wrong. It's my job to understand why they believe what they do. That's it. And we can't have it both ways. Like that, you know, therapy, weird, I don't know if it was a bill or whatever, where basically like therapists could choose who they worked with and, you know, based on like sexual orientation and uh, all sorts of things. <clears throat> that is not, that is not ethical. But I can't have it both ways. Like, I've got to also work with people that I disagree with, you know, <laughs> and seek to understand. And I think that there's actually a lot of power in that. And we can have a lot more of those conversations than we think we can. But we, what it means is that we have to learn how to have compassion towards our own fear and our own anger and the parts of us that are underneath those views a lot of the time. So I just want to read this to close, and then we'll open it up. I don't remember where this is from. Sorry. <laughs> Why is it so fun to be right? As pleasures go, it is, after all, a second-order one at best. Unlike many of life's other delights, chocolate, kissing, sex, 
It does not enjoy any mainline access to our biochemistry. And yet the thrill of being right is undeniable, universal, and perhaps most oddly, almost entirely undiscriminating. We can't enjoy kissing anyone, but we can relish being right about almost anything. Our indiscriminate enjoyment of being right is matched by an almost equally indiscriminate feeling that we are right. Most of us go through life assuming that we are basically right basically all the time about basically everything. As absurd as it sounds when we stop to think about it, our steady state seems to be one of unconsciously assuming that we are very close to omniscience. If we relish being right and regard it as our natural state, you can guess how we feel about being wrong. For one thing, we tend to view it as rare and bizarre, an inexplicable aberration in the normal order of things. For another, it leads us, leaves us feeling idiotic and ashamed a lot of the time. Of all the things we're wrong about, this idea of error might well top the list. It is our meta, M-E-T-A, mistake. We are wrong about what it means to be wrong. Far from being a sign of intellectual inferiority, the capacity to err is crucial to human cognition. Far from being a moral flaw, it is inextricable from some of our most humane and honorable qualities, and far from being a mark of indifference or intolerance, wrongness is a vital part of how we learn and change. Thanks to error, we can revise our understanding of ourselves and amend our ideas about the world. However disorienting, difficult, and humbling our mistakes may be, it is ultimately wrongness, not rightness, that can teach us who we are. Papancha. <laughs> fun to say, not fun to have, but something we all experience together. So we'd love to open it up. We've got plenty of time, 10 minutes or so, 10, 11, 12 minutes. Anyone that wants to share, check in, anything that piqued your interest, you don't have to be an expert of anything other than being a human being. Uh, maybe limit your time to a few minutes so more people get an opportunity and try not to give advice to other people. Just share from your personal experience if you would. And the floor is open. Thank you for listening. <laughs>